This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Navy Secretary nominee Carlos del Toro says hitting the Navy's goal of 355 ships will require, quote, additional resources from Congress. Del Toro told the Senate Armed Services Committee at his confirmation hearing Tuesday, China and climate change are the biggest threats to the Navy in coming years. Defense News reports there's no timeline yet for the Senate to confirm Del Toro. Two other nominees are closer to Senate confirmation tonight. Senator Elizabeth Warren has released her holds on the nominations of Heidi Hsu to be Undersecretary for Research and Engineering and Frank Kendall to be Air Force Secretary. Breaking defense reports Warren took off her hold after both nominees agreed to wait four years instead of two after they leave office to work in the defense industry. The House Appropriations Committee's markup of the 2022 defense spending bill saves three littoral combat ships the Navy wanted to decommission. The committee's report says its members are, quote, disappointed. The Navy asked to take the Fort Worth, Little Rock, and Detroit out of service. Defense News reports the committee would let the Navy retire the USS Coronado. The Navy's current budget situation doesn't allow for room to grow to 355 ships, according to Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Michael Gilday. But the total number of ships in the fleet may be the wrong measure. Major General John Ferrari, U.S. Army retired, is visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's former director of program analysis and evaluation for the Army. He's writing about Navy innovation with Bill Greenwald in Real Clear Defense. General, thanks very much for coming on the program. It's great to have you here. I was struck by the innovation of what you and Bill are suggesting. The Navy should start with five existing ships and unleash the power of America's commercial sector on them. What would that look like in your view? John, welcome. Thank you for having me. And uh, so what we're talking about is a lot of times when services develop new systems, uh, the, the Ford Carrier, Future Combat Systems, Joint Strike Fighter, they're, very, they're multi-year, take 10, 15 years, make a lot of promises. And by the time they actually fielded, a lot of the technology is obsolete and it actually doesn't do anything for the current warfighter today. So what we're suggesting is, right, the software revolution that's upon us, the non-traditional defense industrial base that's out there doing automation and software, uh, virtual reality, let's unleash that today on the fleet to change the fleet we have today. And what it would look like is to take five ships or so outfit them from head to toe with 5G technology, all sorts of sensors and cameras, take the Army's individual virtual augmentation system, the IVAS system, which they've worked with Microsoft, put those on there as the operating system, and then let the software engineers work with the, work with the fleet and the sailors uh, to unleash software and see what they can do now, not 15 years from now. What kind of a timeline do you propose that the Navy would be able to accomplish these three steps that you're proposing? So the Army did IVAS in two, two, two plus years, right? IVAS was born at, on the rubble of the failed effort for the Army to develop Win-T, and it put the software engineers together with Microsoft's gaming engineers uh, to produce these headsets that the soldiers are using and integrating into vehicles, and, and it's going across the Army. 
So the Navy, if they started now, right, could take the ships and in a short period of time, six months or so, outfit them and, and get IVAS on board uh, and begin to innovate within six months with a goal of fielding new, new software and fielding some of this stuff into the fleet within four years, as opposed to a typical program, which promises to deliver 10 years uh, from now. You and Bill write, this approach minimizes the number of moving parts needed to develop AI, artificial intelligence enabled ships. What's the benefit to the warfighter at the tip of the spear to that general? So if you look at the Joint Strike Fighter, they, they have a new plane, they have new concepts, new repair parts, new engines, new software. And when you bring it all together, it doesn't really work too many moving pieces. So the, the sailors are out there today and, and the warfighters need systems today. And software is able to change what they're doing and it will get them increased capability today. In the same way, the Army's driving and really changing the way the infantry operates with IVAS, the Navy can take that same playbook and run it for the sailors at the lowest level possible. So you mentioned the F-35, and rightfully so, a lot of problems with that aircraft that we've talked about in this program over the years, not the least of which is the ALIS software that is basically the operating system of that ship, or excuse me, of that aircraft. Do you propose that the, in this case, the Navy should rely primarily or, or entirely on commercial solutions that already exist rather than trying to cook its own? Yes, developing software is difficult business. And when you develop your own software, you have the challenges that it doesn't talk to anybody else's software. So today you and I could get on our, on our smartphones and send an email to somebody in Germany and they can read it in German and you can send them an emoji and they can get it. It's interoperable, it's all built on the same standards. Yet we can't communicate from a ship to a plane to, a, to, to an army infantry. And so by building off of IVAS, which is built off commercial gaming technology, right, you have the benefits of cloud computing, commercial standards, and you can really build out a, a joint network faster than if you the department tries to build it from the top down. It's a bottoms up approach to software innovation. That concept that you just outlined, General, is exactly the same concept that uh, General Goldfein, the former chief of staff of the Air Force, outlined to me in a conversation this week. The, the services obviously get that concept. What's the holdup in your view, getting it from understanding to implementation? It's uh, two things. It's one, it's risk tolerance, right? So you have to move out now and accept the fact that, that you're gonna borrow and piece together technology today that you may not have uh, invented and, and understand that some of this stuff is not secure today, but you'll build it over time. The second piece is the, the internal bureaucracy of how these things are funded, right? Programs get funded. So in the Navy's case, they, they fund ships. And so all the things that go with it. So you set out this large program for ships. Why IVAS was successful in the Army is the program that was funded completely and utterly failed, WIN-T. And it was in that gap before a new program that could start that extra money was there that enabled this bottom-up innovation. So in, in many respects, it was a bit of an accident that it happened. The Army took advantage of that and has really built a great system. Uh, the Navy needs to do the same thing, which is take advantage of that, bring it in, outship it. You, yes, you have to take five ships and, and, and out of service, and nobody wants to do that right now to do that. But, but it'll yield dividends and capability for the force today before the CNO and the new secretary leave office rather than handing off a shipbuilding plan that won't deliver capability until 2035. Uh, John Ferrari, thanks very much for joining me. My regards to Bill Greenwald. Thank you for your time today. Thank you very much.
You can find a link to that article at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, the Pentagon's Jedi is dead. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's next for cloud computing for the world's number one cloud customer? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Pentagon will call its new cloud vehicle the Joint Warfighter Cloud Capability. The, the Pentagon says it canceled JEDI because its requirements have changed since the original solicitation. Jack Wilmer's chief executive officer at Core Force, he's former deputy CIO for cybersecurity and chief information security officer at the Pentagon. Jack, welcome. It's good to see you. What's your reaction to what we learned yesterday about the cancellation of the JEDI contract? Yeah, thanks, Francis. Um, so, you know, I would say it's it's really a cool opportunity for the department to be able to start fresh. Uh, so they've obviously still got enterprise cloud computing requirements and needs. Uh, they've earlier this year announced the uh, Joint All-Domain Command and Control Initiative, the uh, AI Data Acceleration Initiative, and both of those are going to be heavily dependent on enterprise cloud. So uh, DOD also has the same unique requirements in terms of being able to support tactical environments and ensure synchronization across security domains. And so I think uh, you know, all of these are things that, uh, you know, the promise of an enterprise cloud is going to be able to help the department solve. Uh, and so I'm really excited that they're going to have the opportunity to, you know, hopefully get multiple uh, enterprise clouds in place soon. If this is an opportunity to start fresh, how would you like to see the department do that to get this capability to the warfighter as soon as possible? It's three years behind schedule now. Yeah, I, I think it's a really good point. And, you know, the good news is though this procurement is three years behind schedule, uh, the department has still been able to make pretty substantial progress in the past three years. And so when you look at things like um, the CVR that was rolled out during the pandemic that's evolved into DOD 365. Uh, many of the challenges that the department set out to address with JEDI are things that they've actually been able to solve through the rollout of these other uh, enterprise cloud capabilities. And so obviously an infrastructure cloud is a very different thing than a um, you know managed service uh, in, in terms of something like DOD 365. Uh, however, there's a lot of security policies and other things that uh, the department has been able to already update. Uh, I think there's still going to be a lot more work to do uh, as they roll out the enterprise uh, cloud infrastructure, but uh, I think they're going to be able to take advantage of uh, some of the major changes that they've done over the past few years. Cloud has become so much more a commodity than it was three years ago. Is that potentially part of the opportunity that you see here, Jack, that the, the Pentagon, uh, maybe the reason that it's decided to set this up as an IDIQ instead of uh, a, a, a basically it's starting from scratch on a new contract? Yeah, I, I think without a question. So, you know, and, and cloud has been a commodity for a while now, but I think that where we've really seen some advances are on uh, things like interoperability. So the ability to, you know, have a workload on one cloud, uh, move it to another, have workflows across multiple cloud providers, uh, things that the department should absolutely be able to take advantage of. So I think that uh, the fact that the uh, cloud industry has evolved over the past couple of years, uh, substantially more capabilities available, I think are also uh, key factors in there. What do you expect to see us learn about this between now and October when the solicitation is supposed to come out? Or are we pretty much going to sit on it between now and then until we see what the solicitation actually says? 
You, you know, I don't know the department's plans, but I, I do know industry well enough to know that we're going to hear uh, lots of things about lots of capabilities that are available, uh, probably in an attempt to influence, you know, what the government ultimately comes out and contracts for. And I think that, you know, my perspective is that if you look at uh, the real key thing that the department's been trying to do since day one with the Enterprise Cloud Initiative is to accelerate the delivery of capability for the warfighter, to get capability into the warfighter's hands faster. Uh, much of that requires policy changes on the government side, uh, and that's some of the stuff that we've been able to work. But I think that there's also still tremendous capability that exists in the industry that are going to really help uh, to accomplish that mission. And I think when you look at the tie-in again with JADC2, that Joint All-Domain Command and Control and AI Data Acceleration Initiative, I think that's going to really help industry uh, position uh, what capabilities they want to be able to have included with the cloud offerings. Does the position of JADC2 as being so integral to what the future fight looks like, Jack, make buying this cloud different than buying some other cloud, or are the principles the same in your view? Yeah, I would say uh, th there's some differences, uh, but the principles are generally the same. So, uh, you know, the way that I look at it, DOD has had an urgent need for this cloud for a number of years now. And I think that the the focus on JADC2 just even amplifies more uh, what that ur urgent need is. I think in terms of the JADC2 focus, a lot of the emphasis has got to be on um, understanding that we're not going to be able to take all the data that's required for that environment and push it back to CONUS. You know, it really is all about the data. It's about enabling the processing of that data, uh, the analytics, the, the types of things that we can run on top of that to happen closer to where the data is. And so I think that some of those principles are the things that are driving uh, the department's analysis of even across all the hyperscale providers that exist, which are the clouds that are going to be best enable uh, the department to be able to work in that construct. It's interesting that you mentioned the, the CONUS versus OCONUS because when the OCONUS cloud strategy came out a couple of weeks ago, I got two different notes from two different people that don't know each other that said, this must mean Jedi's going out the window. Is that, was that a sense that you had as well? Because nobody seemed to be really too surprised by this. They just were surprised that it was yesterday. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the way that I look at it is it has been kind of building to that. And and at the end of the day, what's what's most important is that the department get in as expeditious of a manner as possible an enterprise capa cloud capability in place. And I think that what you've seen is the news building from uh, the announcement of JADC2, the uh, initiation of the AI Data Acceleration Initiative, a number of other mission capabilities that are dependent on an enterprise cloud. Uh, and then obviously JEDI has been mired in litigation for a number of years. And so I think that uh, the department has this urgent need to get the cloud capability in place. And I think that when you look at uh, the mission impact, um, the department looked at you know the acquisition strategy and, and found that this is probably going to be what's going to enable them to get that in place uh, as quickly as possible. And I think the other key thing to keep in mind is the department has always had a strategy of multiple cloud vendors. It was never intended to be only one enterprise cloud. Uh, that was really part of the journey towards getting to multiple clouds. And, and again, a lot of the rationale behind that single cloud was that we had a lot that we had to learn on the department side uh, in terms of new capabilities and, and uh, policy 
changes, that sort of thing. And I think that what you've seen is over the past couple of years, the department's actually been able to knock a lot of those objectives down through MillCloud to uh, CVR uh, into O365, that sort of thing. So I think at the end of the day, uh, it's really a culmination of events that's enabled the department to really just move to the next phase in its cloud strategy, which is bringing in multiple vendors. Jack Wilmer, thanks very much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks, Francis. Great to see you. Up next, the Navy's budget says the fleet can't grow beyond 300 ships. Straight ahead on Government Matters, that budget may force the Navy into strategic bankruptcy. We archive every episode of Government Matters at govmatters.tv. I'll be right back. Welcome back. Navy Secretary nominee Carlos Del Toro says he's on board with maintaining the Navy's 355-ship fleet goal. He told the Senate Armed Services Committee Tuesday that goal requires more money from Congress over the next several years. Chris Doherty, senior fellow in the defense program at the Center for a New American Security. He's writing about the future of the Navy's fleet in War on the Rocks. Chris, I love your work because you never mince words. You start this piece out writing, the U.S. Navy's on the verge of strategic bankruptcy, and you have a quote from that great naval philosopher, Ernest Hemingway, from The Sun Also Rises. How do you possibly connect the two of those together, Chris? Welcome. Thank you so much, Francis. I appreciate it. Um, I think the connection for me is pretty obvious, which is that the Navy has been stringing along its efforts to build a larger fleet and a more modern fleet over the last 20 to 30 years, um, but it's never actually gotten there. Um, you know, their 300 ship goal or 313 or 355 ship goal has been around for greater than 20 years, and yet we still have a, a fleet of, of fewer than 300 ships. And I think if you look at the modernization efforts of the Navy, a lot of the programs that we thought we would be bringing online right now, like the DDGX or like the CGX, um, have fallen by the wayside and have been canceled. And so what you see is this bathtub in terms of both capacity and capability. And now increasingly, because of, of constant deployments, you see a bathtub in terms of readiness. And so it's hard to find a place where the Navy isn't struggling to keep pace with the strategic demands placed upon it. And ultimately, that's what bankruptcy is, where we can't pay the debts that we've incurred. And somehow, the, some way, those debts get called in. And I think the Navy is facing that today. It needs a larger fleet to meet COCOM demands, but it also needs a more capable fleet in, in the medium term to meet the, the rising threat of China. And then in the long term, it needs to start making some long-term technology bets. And I think it doesn't have enough resources to do all three of those. And I think in the end, it's, it's an unsatisfying result. Um, not to pile on, but at the beginning of this program, I mentioned in the headlines the fact that the Navy wants to uh, retire four of its littoral combat ships. The uh, House um, uh, Appropriations Committee would uh, let it retire only one of them, but that program's not near its maturity, its life expectancy. And we've talked on this program uh, at great length about the Ford-class carrier program. You write in this piece, Chris, about three lacks lack of consensus, lack of a shared vision, and lack of options. How did we get here and what do we do about it now that we're here? So I think the first thing is the lack of consensus. And you know we've, we've belatedly arrived at a consensus agreement that China is the pacing challenge for the Department of Defense. But what exactly that pacing challenge is and when it occurs is not an area of consensus. There are some who believe that the challenge is most acute today or in the near term zero to five range time frame. There's other folks who believe that it's more of a five to 10, maybe even a 15 year problem where we really need to worry about a Chinese threat to Taiwan or to Japan in that time frame. And then there's another group of folks who really are worried about the long term military technical competition with China that spans you know, 30, 40 years and beyond. It's going to 
in their mind, make up the, the inherent portion of the defense competition of the 21st century. And so, and then there's there are also questions about what is the threat? Is it gray zone incursions in places like Scarborough Shoal, or is it a full up invasion of a country like Taiwan? And I think as long as you have disagreements about when the threat might occur and what the threat might be, it's really hard to reach consensus on what kind of fleet that you want to build. Because if you think the biggest threat is conflict and you think the biggest problem is an invasion of Taiwan, you might want a fleet that comprises relatively larger numbers of submarines and other undersea uh, uh, vessels. But if you think the real problem is day-to-day -day competition in places like the South China Sea, then you want a, a fleet comprising large numbers of manned surface combatants. And the problem with that is you can't do both within a constrained budget environment. And so until you have that shared consensus on what you think the problem is and a shared vision of where you think you need to go in order to meet that problem, it's really difficult to come to an agreement about what that 355 ship count or whatever number you want to use, what that should look like and what it should comprise. You, uh, regardless of which direction, which camp one lives in uh, among those two, Chris, you write, the Navy's become like a sports team filled with aging superstars. It knows change is needed, but its choices are limited to proven systems with long-term limitations or immature systems with significant technical and conceptual risks. Is the only choice here more money or are there other choices available to the Navy? I'll be honest, I, you know, I, I went into the article um, thinking that there were options without adding some more money to the Navy budget. And I, I think that ultimately that may not be reasonable. I think, um, you know, uh, even though the article makes clear, and I think I, I firmly believe that more money won't solve the problem, at some point there's going to be a need for additional money to move toward the critical supporting infrastructure in, in shipbuilding and sort of what I, I refer to as the maritime industrial base that comprises not just shipbuilding, but also, um, you know, a merchant marine of personnel um, and all the kinds of things that you need to build a Navy beyond just uh, ships and the yards that build them, but also those that maintain them. That will probably require an upfront investment on the part of Congress and on the part of, of the Office of the Secretary of Defense in order to, to build that base so that we can actually achieve, once we reach consensus on the threat, once we reach a, a shared vision of what the Navy should be, there's there's not enough capacity to build that in terms of shipbuilding and in terms of in terms of shipyard maintenance. So we have to build that first. And I think that's gonna require some upfront large investments. Chris Doherty, thank you very much for joining me as always, appreciate it. You can find a link to that piece and you can find every episode of our show at govmatters.tv. The piece is linked to govmatters.tv slash resources. You get a preview and a recap of every show when you sign up for our newsletters. You just enter your email in the red box on the website. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.
You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's what I want. To, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, stop stop the presses start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's what's needed uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today we just have uh, 20 seconds left tony you have you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract it sounds like oh absolutely it's 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 critical it's the right time the technology is very very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.